A new Texas law bans abortions beginning five or six weeks after the onset of the last menstrual cycle and authorizes any private citizen to file a lawsuit against anyone who performs, aids, or abets an abortion that violates the act. The Supreme Court refused to temporarily enjoin the law, which may presage its position in upcoming abortion-related cases. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Alta Sharo, a Professor Emerita of Law and Bioethics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Professor Sharo has written a perspective article about the Texas law and its potential implications. Professor Sharo, could you start by summarizing SB 8, or the Texas Heartbeat Act, in what circumstances are abortions prohibited under this law? SB 8 in Texas prohibits a physician from performing an abortion after the time that what it defines as a heartbeat can be detected. What we're actually talking about is a cardiac activity at the embryonic stage. It also prohibits anyone from trying to help a woman obtain such an abortion. The exceptions are for medical emergencies, although they are not well defined. No exceptions made for rape or incest. No exception is made if a woman doesn't even yet know she's pregnant until after the six-week deadline has passed, something that is quite possibly going to be the case for many women, since this may be no more than about 10 days after a period had been expected but didn't appear. So beyond all of that, you write in your perspective article that the most damaging element of the law is its enforcement scheme. Why did Texas decide to have private citizens enforce the law rather than the state? The law uses private citizens to enforce because it's more difficult to challenge the law. This has nothing to do with abortion and everything to do with how one goes about challenging laws. Ordinarily, a law like this is passed and then enforced by the state. And so the state becomes the defendant in any legal challenge. That has happened in other places that have tried to pass similar prohibitions on abortion prior to fetal viability. And in each case, the state was the defendant and the state lost. The law was held unconstitutional. In Texas, the law specifically said that the state cannot enforce the law, only citizens can. That means that you can't sue the state as the defendant. And then the question is, who are the defendants? Prior to the moment when somebody actually comes up and uses the law to sue a provider or somebody who purportedly aided or abetted a woman getting an abortion, there is no so-called defendant. It's not possible any longer to sue in advance of the law being used to say that it's unconstitutional. And instead, it forces you to wait until mischief has already occurred and a physician or a friend of a pregnant woman has already been subjected to litigation. Has this kind of public enforcement mechanism been used by other states or for other policies before SB 8? There are other situations in which citizens are able to pursue remedies for violations of law, but we've not seen it used like this. This is something that is a tactic that was drafted by the National Association of Christian Lawyers and is now being promoted as a template. We have other circumstances where citizens have some potential enforcement powers. There's so-called citizen arrest in criminal justice systems. But remember there, the citizen turns over the purported criminal to the state promptly. There's also, in the world of antitrust, citizens who can pursue such a claim, and if they win, can get trouble damages. In this kind of arena, however, we have not seen such tactics used. 
as you say in your article, in Whole Woman's Health versus Jackson, the Supreme Court blocked a temporary injunction that would have allowed time for lower courts to fully review this new law. What was the Supreme Court's reasoning for not enjoining the law? Well, it's very hard to say because what we don't have is a full set of opinions, let alone a full vetting of the issues. In the lower courts, the challengers, that is those representing abortion clinics and providers, were arguing that this law effectively turns citizens into agents of the state. And if they sue a doctor under SP8 and say, you've provided an abortion and it's not permitted, these citizens need to go to a judge to get that lawsuit heard. So in that way, a state eventually becomes the enforcer of the law. But this question of what constitutes turning citizens into state actors is something that needs to be fully argued and briefed. It's something that comes up in other contexts of when the police may or may not use an ordinary citizen to obtain evidence. And none of that was allowed to happen because of the way in which the appellate court and then the Supreme Court stopped proceedings before those discussions and arguments could take place. From the point of view of the US Supreme Court, the case wasn't ready yet because there was no evidence in their mind that there would be what they called irreparable harm if this law was allowed to go into effect while it was still subject to challenge. That's rather frightening because while the law is in effect, it does in fact deter women from having abortions that they are indeed entitled to have under the Supreme Court's own current precedents. And we're seeing evidence of that as women in Texas are frantically calling to try to find clinics in neighboring states that they could go to. So with this decision, the Supreme Court has essentially said that there is no irreparable harm if a woman is denied her constitutional rights and is denied the opportunity to get an abortion. Many of these women will never find a place to have one in time. And that is an implicit finding by the Supreme Court that is very, very worrisome. It tells us a lot about the attitude that the majority of the justices have about the centrality of reproductive autonomy in women's lives and in the equality of women in this country. A Texas OBGYN who wrote an op-ed about an abortion that he provided after the law went into effect, and he pointed out that he felt he had a duty of care to his patient, he's now been sued by two people, neither of them in Texas. What can you tell us about those lawsuits and how would you expect them to play out? This physician has been known in the past as well to allow himself to be used as a test case or a defendant when trying to fight laws that prevent him from providing legally available medical services. The lawsuits that have been brought against him so far are primarily nuisance suits, but what they do demonstrate is the interesting and rather terrifying aspect of the law, which is that it not only allows citizens of Texas to sue providers and others in Texas, but it allows anybody anywhere in the United States to sue. In fact, it's not even clear to me you have to even be in the United States in order to sue. And remember, you can bring suit against a physician or against a friend who helped a woman or against, we're not even sure, against a driver who gave her a lift to a clinic, against the bus that stopped at the clinic's doorstop. It's very unclear how broad this goes. So it doesn't surprise me that the first couple of suits have been mischief suits. You note in your article that the new law is just one example of attempts to constrain physician judgment when it comes to abortion. What policies have other states put in place that dictate physicians' speech or behavior surrounding reproductive health care? 
But one of the most common ways in which the Roe versus Wade decision has been chipped away at has been in the creation of requirements before a woman can have an abortion. And these requirements often require physicians and nurses and other healthcare providers to do things that would not be consistent with standard of care. For example, there are legislatures in a number of states that have written a script that must be read to a woman to describe stages of fetal development and purported attributes of a fetus at each stage of development. Some of these scripts have information that's either outdated or was never true at all, having to do with either fetal viability or about the ability to feel pain. In other cases, legislatures have required women to wait, this is very common, to wait at least 24 hours between the initial consult and having the abortion. Keep in mind that since many women live many, many miles away from abortion clinics, this may require an overnight stay. The majority of women having these abortions are already mothers and have children they must care for, often working in low-wage jobs without the ability to take time off. So these seemingly sensible requirements, have 24 hours to wait before you make such a big decision, are really designed to make it difficult to make the decision or to obtain the abortion. There have also been requirements to perform tests that may not be medically necessary, such as ultrasounds, that may or may not have ordinarily been prescribed as part of care. One of the most damaging requirements that has been the subject of a number of legal challenges has to do with requirements for physicians to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals, many of which routinely would deny a physician such admitting privileges if he or she performs abortions. And these requirements are in place even when there is no need for the abortion provider to have admitting privileges in order to get a patient admitted in the unlikely event of a complication. And finally, there have been requirements for counseling that is directed specifically at deterring women from having abortions. And it's counseling that is contrary for many physicians, contrary to their notion about how to care for a patient because they require physicians to distress a patient at a time when she's already made up her mind. So in all of these ways, physicians have been forced to provide medical care in a way that doesn't accord with their own notion of what good practice would constitute. Finally, what other abortion-related cases have reached or are expected to reach the Supreme Court? And what do you see the potential outcomes and implications of those? I think the case that everybody is looking at which has now been scheduled for late autumn argument, is a case coming out of Mississippi. In that case, the state passed a law saying that abortions would be prohibited after 15 weeks, as opposed to after viability. And after 15 weeks would be a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade, which said states can regulate for the purpose of making sure abortion care is done safely, but they can't prohibit abortion prior to fetal viability. So That's the case where we're expecting to hear arguments specifically on whether the court should overturn Roe versus Wade and no longer view a woman's ability to control her pregnancy and her body during pregnancy as something that approaches a protected constitutional right. We don't know how that's going to turn out. Most predictions are that at best, there will be some way the court manages to not completely overrule Roe, but still will chip away at it even further. But the Mississippi Attorney General is working hard to have the court specifically overturn Roe completely and move the question of abortion 
entirely to the discretion of the states with no special protection for women's interests. Thank you, Professor Sharo.